0: This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. All right, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Please open in your Bibles to James, the letter of James, chapter 2. If you're here and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please raise your hand. Our ushers will give you... a free copy of the Bible so you can follow along today as we look at the first 13 verses of chapter two, the first two sections of the letter of James in the New Testament in this series we're doing. And a shout out to Maria, Drew's wife. The only reason we like Drew is because of Maria. It's not just the community group, it's the entire congregation. But Maria's helping with our translation. So we're we're trying to do translation for Spanish speakers this morning. So Maria, give yourself a shout out as you translate to folks. You can tell them how great you are. Say something nice about yourself. James Chapter 2. It's my privilege this morning to read what is God's holy inspired inerrant Word. What a gift for us today as we turn our attention to this central part of being together. God's Word. James 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are Committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we all said, thank you, Lord. Amen. God wants to accomplish something this morning. I believe every time we turn our attention to a text, He wants to do something for us and in us for His glory. And I I think this morning He's at work making us a people, a congregation, individuals transformed by grace who are keeping the royal law. Keeping the royal law. Law. And the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Why is James focused on this? Why would this be what God wants to do in our midst? Well, it's evidence that your faith is genuine. When you keep the royal law, it's evidence your faith is genuine. And James, as you know, is a book about true faith as opposed to a false faith, a false one. Living faith, that's the subtitle of our series. Living faith versus a dead faith. James doesn't minimize faith. He, he doesn't think a person can be justified without faith. Luther missed that. He, James believes faith is supremely important. For, for James, it's so crucial... That he wants to make sure these people, that, that his beloved brothers that he cares so much about, he wants to make sure, because faith is so important that it's a, a genuine faith. He knows, doesn't he, that people deceive themselves. They think they have faith, but the truth is they're hypocrites. And so we've seen him write to his original audience and draw their careful attention to their capacity for self-deceit. And this issue runs through the whole book. He wants those who say, I believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ to be real disciples, to manifest, to show forth a living faith. He wants to wake up people who are self-satisfied, who are self-righteous. They think they're believers, but, but the, and they're satisfied with their evaluation, but their actions tell a different story, and He wants to wake them up. Their works reveal a dead faith, and He wants them to see this because they're deceived. It may not seem like it, but this, this book is a gift to local churches. It's a gift to our church. It's such a means of grace for us to have a season to just camp out here and let James teach us and instruct us. The Lord, I believe, has given this to us to encourage us. Thank you for your response. Last last week was a challenging message. I hope it reflected a challenging text. And I'm, I'm just... Very grateful for the abundance of encouragement that I received. A number of people said things to me like sermons like that are why we are a part of this church as a pastor that 's very meaningful i've i 've learned from other pastors it 's never happened in this church maybe maybe once or twice that isn 't always the response of every congregation preaching. A message like that gets people fired. Preaching a message like that causes people to go to a different church. I often receive also encouragement from our guest speakers. Sometimes they say things publicly so you hear it. Many times though it's private. And these are people that travel and and go to different churches, and they're biblically discerning. They have no reason to flatter me. I'm the poster child for an ordinary pastor. But, for example, when D.A. Carson was here a few weeks ago, he was very encouraging, and he is, trust me, not someone who uses flattery with anyone. I've been with him a number of times, and I've never left feeling that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. <laughs> and the last thing he said to me as we were leaving, he kind of stopped me because I was walking away, and he said, this is a healthy and strategic church. And then he sent me a letter. And he, he said he wanted to just thank everyone. He said there were so many signs over the weekend That this is a local church, and I love how he says this, in good repair, in good heart, delighting in faithfulness, and seeing the extension of the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. He says this, you folks have been an encouragement to me. Exclamation point. I don't think he uses too many exclamation points. (laughs) You folks have been, maybe I'm misreading it. It's displayed prominently in the office if you'd like to come by and read it. I just want you to connect the dots. Your response last week. You're on the edge of your seat. You're listening to God's Word. It, it's not a warm and fuzzy message. And you're encouraging me and telling me that's why you're here. I think that's what Dr. Carson is talking about. And I think what he's saying when he says strategic is the world really needs congregations like that. We certainly aren't the best congregation. We certainly aren't the only congregation living like this, but we do want to aspire to that because there's such a need. It's a great time to be a faithful congregation. It's a great time to be a congregation listening to God's Word because the world needs to hear the Word of God. And so I want you to persevere in faith, and that's what this book is all about. I want you to make it. I want you to stay strong. I want you to be steadfast and movable in your faith. I don't want you to suffer shipwreck so you're wise to listen carefully this morning Not to my sermon as much as God's Word. Hear James. He's concerned about your faith. And he wants to encourage you. So, today's form of self-deception that James wants to go after is feigning a love for neighbor while showing favoritism. What what is it that proves faith to be genuine? This is the question that he's asking in chapter 2. This morning we're going to look, as I said, these these first two sections, just two points. Faith denied and faith confirmed. So, point number one, faith denied. Verse 1, my brothers. And remember, when he says brothers, it's, he doesn't elaborate. He's very concise, but he's, he's sharing. That's, that's James' way of saying I care about you. I'm a pastor. I'm your pastor. I care. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith you persevere in the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ literally who is the glory here's what Dr. Piper says is the glory of God we experience the beauty of God's holiness as the glory of God as God's holiness becomes expressive, creating and penetrating the world, we call it the glory of God. His glory is the streaming out of His holiness for the world to see and admire. God's glory is that which makes God impressive to man. That's the glory of God. It's the streaming of His holiness. And it's what makes Him impressive. That's, that's when we say that's the, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It's what impresses us. And the greatest expression of this glory is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the fullness. Of God's glory. He's God Himself among us in, in all His glory, His goodness, His mercy, His power, His revelation. And here James presents a new thought that really is preparing all of his readers for the whole letter. Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. See, for James, being a Christian isn't conforming to some outward behavior. True religion is genuine communion with God. It's about a relationship with this glorious God. And when there is this relationship, it transforms a person as we would expect. It's expressed outwardly and can be observed. Can you see how that's so different from just trying to find an outward behavior and just doing the outward behavior? That's what he's wanting to correct. He's, he isn't writing about religion. He's writing about faith. He's writing about a relationship with God. He's His concern is the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lord of glory. I became friends with a football coach at UT a number of years ago and he was taking a job with another college football team and he was going to be moving and so I wanted to make sure that I clearly shared the gospel with him before he left because I'd been trying to build this friendship and I'd been looking for open doors and I just wanted to make sure before he left, I sat him down and really let him have it. And so, I'm kidding. I just wanted to make sure I told him the gospel in a clear way or at least as best as I could. And so we went to lunch and we spent an hour talking about how religious he was growing up. And it was just, he did this, he did that. He was very religious. And I I didn't know that. And I was really getting nowhere. The message he was giving me was, I am right with God. And uh, glad you are too. And yet I knew this man's life well enough to know there were some questions about that. But then, about the time I was prepared to give up and pay the bill and leave, he looks at me and says, now, what's this stuff about knowing God? You keep talking about knowing God. What's that all about? So this was after an hour of telling me all the church events he went to and how religious, how how good he was in his religion, and then just out of his own mouth, I don't know God. <laughs> I've mean, I started stumbling around and tried to say, well, let me, let me tell you about knowing God. Glad you asked. But it isn't uncommon for people to be religious and lack genuine faith. It, it's the message of James. He's going after this. He. He wants to lead them away from any kind of superficial, external display of religion that isn't real. That's what he's after. And so we need to pause for just a minute and say, is your faith genuine? Do you know Christ? Do you know the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ? Verse 2, if a, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you get this good seat, but the poor man, you say, you go over there, you sit down at my feet. You've made distinctions, James says. It, it dishonors the poor. It's a denial of faith. Faith denied. Favoritism. He's addressing treating people differently based on some kind of external distinction. And this is so specific. It's kind of shared as a hypothetical, but it's so specific. And as we go through the text, you just can tell, no, this really happened. Someone who has these outward trappings of wealth Gets ushered in the congregations, James writing is writing to, to a nice seat, and the poor man has to stand in a different place. And all these distinctions are made based on just looks. One commentator, Jay Mortier, says it, it's timeless illustration. It is still not always easy to know how to accommodate a tramp in a worship service. A poor man in shabby clothing, literally filthy. The term is meant to say it's revolting. This person probably has an odor. James is not making it easy for us. He's describing someone that it would be difficult to accommodate them in a worship service. The sin Of partiality, the sin of favoritism is the sin of judging people by externals. There's a false distinction here, a a distinction made for wrong or even evil reasons. And the question he's saying is are you going to put the Lord of glory first or are you going to be worldly in how you evaluate people? Remember, he grew up in the household of Joseph and Mary. This is Jesus' stepbrother. They were poor. James knows how the world thinks. He he knows the inequality in the world. And he knows that the world works in favor of the rich and against the poor. But he also knows the gospel. He knows the good news about Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you and I might see the glory of God in the face of Christ. He left true riches and became poor. He took our nature. He took our sin. He took our curse. We were blind. We couldn't see the glory of God. But He made us see by bearing our sins and fulfilling all righteousness. That's the good news for every Christian. How can we make distinctions? We can't. We can't. So if a man that has all the trappings of wealth walks into our assembly, our meeting, our gathering, our worship service, how do we respond? The key to understanding how to respond is to ask this question. How would Christ accept someone who comes into our meeting in shabby clothing or someone who's wealthy? The answer is, He would become poor so they could become rich. And those with genuine faith, they're like Him. That's His whole point. Into the meeting walks a man with gold rings on his fingers. Everybody wants to take their wedding ring off this morning, you know. But but really what he's talking about is cultural. So one commentator I was reading, he was writing about the eighties. He was writing in the eighties, and he said, Today it might be a Rolex watch or an Armani suit. I'm not sure that still works. I don't know if I've ever seen a Rolex watch before. It's different now in this 21st century, isn't it? But the point is that someone is making an ostentatious display of status. And it's the kind of thing that causes people to defer to them. It's the kind of thing that gets them special treatment. It's a... Status symbol. What is it today? I mean, I'm not even sure I know. You know, I thought it may be really cool, shabby clothing. (laughs) Because we're kind of into shabby. I go around to all my friends. Man, I wish I could wear shorts on Sunday morning. This is nice. We have our symbols of status. Our culture discriminates, for example, based on age. Our, our culture likes youth. I'm old now and I'm not happy about it, you know. I liked it when I was young, but now not so much. Sherry and I went to a restaurant. My wife Sherry and I went to a restaurant the other night. And we both left talking, saying that restaurant's in trouble. Everybody there was our age. James might say to us, a young man comes in and an old man comes in. How do you treat them? It's to be expected that the world defers to those who have the money, the wealth we we get. At a UT football game, there's guys in the skybox and guys not so much in the skybox. But there's no place in the body of Christ for this. When this happens, it's a tragedy. It's incompatible with faith, genuine faith. It's hypocrisy on display. The rich man is offered a good seat, an honorable one. But the poor man is told you sit on the floor. In verse 9, James says you're committing a sin. You're a lawbreaker. Now if you read history or you go to historic places, you know it wasn't long ago when the wealthy actually paid an annual rent and got preferred seating. and lock, They would have pews and they would lock the pews. I think it's a great idea. We're going to start doing that next Sunday. We need to generate some funds around here. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But those, those who couldn't afford it Had to sit in the far corners of the building. This wasn't that long ago. They they were literally called free seats. I I read about one of my favorite pastors was Charles Simeon, and the congregation turned against him, and the people that had the locked pews wouldn't let anybody sit there, even though they weren't coming to his meetings. Now, how could this be? Can't you imagine James walking into a church like that? Did you read my letter? (laughs) I mean, how do you do this? (laughs) It's right after Hebrews in the New Testament. Did you read it? This is the sin of favoritism. Self-deception blinds people to the clear teaching of Scripture. But we're past all that, right? We're not vulnerable to this. We would never, come on, we wouldn't sell the front row. Depends on how much. No, I'm kidding. We wouldn't show favoritism, would we? There was a, I read a recent article that Jake sent to me. It was called, An NFL star just walked into my church. How should I treat him? It's written by an NFL star, Austin Carr. Rookie wide receiver in New Orleans. Imagine, he says, standing in your church sanctuary on a typical Sunday before the service begins and you look toward the entrance and notice a famous athlete from your hometown team walking in with his wife and children. And he tells this whole story. Talks about big-time fans being and it. It's true. It's him. And he talks about how NFL people NFL players are treated. And he has stories of all these Christian guys that, that are hesitant to even go to a church because of the way, because of the sin of favoritism. He quotes our text today in this article. The worst one, he talks about his most awkward church moment. Eric and I had a specially awkward church moment in the middle of a Sunday morning sermon the assistant pastor asked the congregation for a show of hands identifying fans of the hometown team. Keep a low profile, my wife and I didn't raise our hands. Noticing this, the preacher squinted at us, motioned in our direction and said, why don't you have your hand up? You play for the team, don't you? Immediately, every head in front of us swiveled around, stared at us. He goes on to talk about how embarrassed he was. I'd like to be the pastor reading this article. They actually went to the guy and they, they talked about and explained to him about the sin of favoritism, and how it doesn't serve the people in the congregation, how it isn't biblical. Talk to him about young believers in the NFL who, who don't want to go to church and how it would affect them. This is worldliness. What would you do this morning if Peyton himself walked in the doors? How would you respond? How would I respond? That's the question. According to James, you have made distinctions among yourselves. Verse 4. You're discriminating against people. You've become judges with evil thoughts. Here's what Dan McCartney says. In the ancient world, As is still to an appalling degree the case in the modern world, the application of justice in the civil and criminal courts quite often was a function, the economic resources and social status of the litigants. In other words, the rich got a better treatment in the courts than the poor did. But Judaism and Christianity with it insisted that God gave real justice. He can't be bribed. His judgments aren't based, not a whit, on whether the person in the dock or the person on trial is a king or a pauper, a movie star or a farmhand. Thus, equity is also required of human judges, and inequity is roundly condemned in in the Old Testament. James points out that discriminatory seating is of a piece with the perversion of justice that all too frequently occurs in secular courts. And thus it is an implicit denial of faith in the God who shows no partiality. In fact, the Lord prefers the poor. The Lord gives faith to the poor. James brings this out. He did that with Israel, didn't he? He didn't choose them because they were impressive in the world. And Paul brings this out when he talks to the Corinthians. He said, how many of you were of noble birth? And if you read through church history, you discover the Lord likes to choose the weak. Point number one, faith denied. Point number two, faith confirmed. Faith is confirmed by fulfilling the royal law. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, this is the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James is all about doing. Faith confirmed. Genuine faith, living faith is confirmed. It's confirmed because people love their neighbor as themselves. If you show partiality, verse 9, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Okay, James, tell us what you really think. Okay, It's sin. What you're doing is sin. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The law says don't commit adultery. It says don't commit murder. If you murder but don't commit adultery, are you a lawbreaker? Yes, because the law has integrity. the law is complete, it's perfect it's unified there's there's unity to it. there's no room for partial obedience. The law is God's law. God is the lawgiver. God is one. the law is one. Now James original readers and and all his readers, they may have thought that they were trying to love their neighbor, but they were deceived. If you ask them if they kept the royal law, they might say, yes, of course we keep the royal law, but they're deceived. They are deceived because they are showing favoritism. Their, Their love is selective, and that's No love at all. They're showing favoritism for selfish gain. They're judges with evil thoughts. And that's to commit sin. They're pandering to the rich. They're lawbreakers. This selective obedience is disobedience. James isn't talking about, okay, here's my merits and here's my demerits. I want my merits to outweigh my demerits. The issue is an attitude toward the law of God. The issue is an attitude toward God. James, James is saying someone who loves wealthy people more than poor people is not obeying the command of love, you're you're committing sin. You're doing sin. And when you when you say stand over there, you are sinning. Your words. James is not just about actions, he's about words. You sit over there. Here, you come and have this good seat. They're sinning. There is a a sign in neighborhoods I've noticed. You may have seen this. And it, it's trying to encourage you to drive at a certain speed so you don't endanger the children that live there. Have you seen these signs? It says, drive like your children live here. It always strikes me as funny because I, I would like to think I care about their children too, you know? Like if I think, okay, my kids don't live here, so I'll drive 100 miles an hour. If I hit a few kids, no problem. drive like you love others the way you love yourself. That's the royal law. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There's a there's a sense here where James is saying you're going to be judged and you're going to be judged by the royal law. There is a judgment to come. And there's a, there's a sense in the way he says it that it's coming quickly. There's an urgency. And the, the believers in the New Testament, they lived with the sense that Christ was coming back and he was coming back quickly. It was imminent. And as time went on, people would say, well, apparently not. But then, then the, the believers would say, well, you don't understand how the Lord thinks. For him... A day is like a thousand years. His return is imminent. And you're going to be judged. I'm going to be judged based on this royal law. The good news is verse 13. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. So so today, the Lord is at work making us a people who keep the royal law. The Lord is reminding us of the fact that genuine faith Looks like this. And the Lord is encouraging the fear of the Lord so that we know we're going to be judged. But we end today with the good news about mercy. Judgment. These are two little wisdom statements. And they're very powerful. James is abrupt. He's concise. It's wisdom literature. Judgment is without mercy. To one is shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is a God of steadfast love and kindness. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is compassionate towards His people always. This is the way He relates to them. He's merciful to His people in judgment. And therefore... His people are to be merciful when they judge others. They're not to be judges with evil thoughts. They, they are forgiven, and the one who forgives should expect forgiveness. The one who's merciful should expect mercy. It, this is a statement about how powerful mercy is. It's so powerful. And when we stand before the Lord, you know what's going to happen? The clear teaching of the New Testament is those with genuine faith, when Christ comes back, we will all know everything we've ever done has been shot through with sin. There's not going to be any, any perfect people standing before the Lord. And you know what's going to happen? when we stand before Him, we're going to receive rewards. And we're going to give Him all the glory. And those kind of people with that kind of genuine faith treat others the same way. They don't make worldly distinctions. And aren't we grateful that this morning that's what God is doing through the Gospel? through the good news about Christ. He's sending His Spirit. What are you excited about? What He's excited about is transforming this congregation. Transforming every individual Christian with genuine faith into the likeness of Christ for His glory alone. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, I... I do pray for this congregation. I pray that our faith would be built up. Lord, I pray we would see our faith as a great gift. I pray that we would fight for our faith, that we would listen carefully to Your Word this morning, that we would be on the edge of our seat, Lord, so that we would hear Your Word and our faith would grow and and be strengthened, Lord, that we would be edified in our soul. And that as a result, Lord, we would be kind of like the first fruits of the gospel. That we would look like Christ and we would be a congregation that that truly is in good repair and strategic for your gospel mission. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.